0: Hello and welcome to Stories of Scotland, a podcast exploring the fascinating history, nature and folklore of Scotland. I'm Jenny, a wannabe vampire.
1: And I'm Annie, an archivist turned vampire hunter. Wait, what? (laughs) So in this episode, we are continuing our journey through the history and stories that haunt the ragged walls of both old and new Slains castles. Both of these ruins sit atop steep cliffs on the Aberdeenshire coastline, looking out into the stormy North Sea. In the last episode, we explored the history of the Haze
0: of Errol, how they came to own Old Slains castle, and why King James VI ordered the castle to be destroyed with cannons, gunpowder and, of course, shovels. If you haven't listened to that episode I do recommend going back and listening to it now just so that you're all caught up on the context train and we get the download numbers.
1: (laughs) If you have listened you'll remember that the last episode ended with Francis Hay, the 9th Earl of Errol, returning from his exile, renouncing his Catholicism and slotting surprisingly quickly back into Scottish high society. He could not return so easily back to Old Slane's Castle, as it was all but a pile of rubble. Those shovels had really done their job. And so he sets about building a bigger, better, bolder castle, imaginatively called New Slane's Castle. And he accomplished his
0: alliterative goals, because New Slane's Castle is massive. It was built around the turn of the century, in the late 1500s and early 1600s, The initial structure was added to in 1664 and then later again in 1707 and so by this time it is a huge imposing castle perched right upon the edge of the perilous cliffs.
1: And because history loves a pattern, the Hays were again embroiled in some anti-government shenanigans, namely the Jacobite uprising. Francis Hay died in 1631, but he passed the enthusiastic rebellion gene down his family line. By 1705, we have Charles Hay, the 13th Earl of Errol, ruling the Roost, just in time to witness the act of union between Scotland and England. He is a loyal supporter of the exiled king, James Edward Stuart, sometimes called the old pretender by his enemies, and of course Charles Hay opposes the act of union. So he did what the Hays do best and started scheming. New
0: Slain's Castle became the landing point and base for French agents sent by King Louis XIV to gather intelligence and garner support for a possible Jacobite uprising. Louis XIV liked what his agents came back with, and so, in 1708, decided to launch a fleet of 28 ships to sail for Scottish shores. Aboard one of these ships was none other than the exiled King James Stuart himself, ready to take back control of the country that he deemed his birthright. Alas, their fleet was scuttled by the British Navy and the plan abandoned they never so much as landed on Scottish shores, and the old pretender went back to Le Drawing Board. Charles Hay, however, didn't have such an easy escape. He was arrested for suspected treason and imprisoned in Edinburgh Castle. He was later then moved to London and imprisoned there, and ultimately lived the rest of his life in exile in Europe until his death aged 40 in 1717.
1: Charles was unmarried and left no heirs, so the title of Errol passed to his sister, Mary, who became the 14th Countess of Errol. Hell yeah! I love an early modern countess, let's go! Mary was just as pro-stuart and pro-scheming as her brothers, which means that she also has Jacobite tendencies. And then many decades pass until she seizes her chance in 1745 and raises an army of Buchan men to join the Jacobite forces fighting the Hanoverians.
0: But, as we know, this fighting culminated in the Battle of Culloden and unfortunately for Mary and other Jacobite supporters in the north of Scotland, the Battle of Culloden did not fall in their favour.
1: No, it certainly did not. It was a great loss. Upon this defeat at Culloden, many of the Scottish aristocrats, who had supported Bonnie Prince Charlie in his bid to reclaim his family's throne, were forced on the run. Essentially, if you're not supporting the ruling king, if you're supporting an exiled king, you are definitely guilty of treason. And if you're caught, you're going to be facing some kind of execution. So these people were scattered throughout the landscape, laying low in hiding for fear of arrest. Mary corresponded with as many of them as she possibly could and she did her best to try to keep them safe, providing them with necessities and advising them on the movement of the government forces. But Mary herself avoided arrest. That she did. I'm sure that she learnt a lesson or two from her brother's imprisonment. She managed to carry on as Countess of Errol until her death in 1758. However, she too died without an heir, and so her title and Slains Castle fell to the son of her niece, James Boyd. James Boyd immediately changes his name to Hay upon inheriting this grand title. And so he keeps the Hay name alive, albeit via deed poll. <laughs> and so we continue the line of the Hay family, living within the mighty walls of New Slain's castle for the generations to come. The power
0: shuffles and struggles continue in varying degrees for the next sixty or so years. Until we come to the castle's next most important date. We are now in 1830. And this, Annie, is the
1: year when the 18th Earl of Errol commissioned the castle remodelled. So you're saying that one of the most key dates in this castle's timeline is a facelift?
0: Yep. The 18th Earl breathed a fresh lease of life into the now almost 250-year-old castle just a little TLC, a little nip here, tower there. And what do you know, the castle was rejuvenated and modernised. And this is so important, because it is this modernised yet still imposing new slain's castle that inspired the Irish writer Bram Stoker in his writing of Dracula. (laughs) DRACULA! What a transition!
1: <laughs> Could you just add in one little like vampire chomping and sucking blood? Oh yeah 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 yeah. <clears throat> It. that That's just the noise of you eating spaghetti, Jenny It is, I shouldn't be eating while I'm recording I know it's bad for my laptop <laughs>
0: playwright Walter Scott suggested that the rugged coasts at Slains Castle would be a fine place for a mermaid. And while I'm sure there is a mermaid sunning themselves on Slains sea rocks, there is a far more dangerous lore atop the cliffs than below. For at New Slains Castle, we have vampires.
1: I've heard many times that New Slains provided some rough inspiration for Dracula but I always assumed it was the same way that every cave on the west coast of Scotland was where Bonnie Prince Charlie had hidden after Culloden. You know, Bonnie Prince Charlie invented the North Coast 500. <laughs> the, the North Cave
0: 500. <laughs> I mean, he went west, not north, but... The, the West Cave 500. We should actually put together a map of like all the caves that lay claim and make a little road trip out of it.
1: Unlike the North Cave 500... When we dug further into this claim, we discovered that Bram Stoker did in fact take a lot of inspiration from this part of the Scottish coast. But to understand why this is, first we need to sink our teeth into some context about why vampires became such a cultural phenomenon during the 1800s. This time period is truly the era of the vampire it gets to a peak in popularity that we won't see again until Twilight.
0: Queen Victoria definitely would have had an Edward Cullen poster above her bed. Just because you did Jenny doesn't mean that the monarch would. You're right, I did. I did have an Edward Cullen poster above my bed when I was a teenager. But technically, Queen Victoria would have had four of them, and that's why it's called a four-poster bed. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm getting a new sidekick for this podcast, Jenny. You say that every week, Annie, and yet here I still am. Some would say I am immortal. (laughs) You put too much garlic in your spaghetti for you to be a vampire, Jenny. That is true. I do like
0: garlic a lot. And my own reflection. It would never work out. (laughs) (laughs) But let's all get aboard the context train and find out why vampires were such a hit during this time period. Choo-choo. it's like chew chew like you're chewing like a like a vampire would chew on a human but you're also chewing like a train along a track
1: i think vampires famously suck instead of chew suck suck (laughs) (laughs) let's go to geneva in 1818 mary and percy shelley lord byron and his physician polidori are all sitting around indoors and bored that they can't go outside to play because the weather is bad. For those of you who aren't familiar with these names, they are all young, up-and-coming and and semi-established writers of the time. Apart from the
0: physician, he was just there for the free food.
1: My doctor always comes along when there's going to be a buffet. They decide to while away the time by having a contest to see who can write the best ghost story. And the winner is Mary Shelley, because she writes Frankenstein.
0: Ah, I had my money on the physician underdog.
1: But in the same competition, Byron comes up with a story about a vampire. And this story is often seen as the grandfather of romantic vampire stories though it's later developed and published by the physician, Polidori.
0: Yes, the doctor pulls through. (laughs) To be fair, it wouldn't be great to be in a contest with Mary Shelley when she's coming up with one of the most gruesome stories of humanity ever. You just, you don't stand a chance. She smashed it. She absolutely smashed the ghost out the hallway. (laughs)
1: But we do get our hearts pounding faster for romantic and sophisticated vampire stories. Ah, yes, the
0: glittery vampires.
1: Although before these
0: waves of new age vampires, technically, vampires already exist at this time as really savage creatures throughout folklore in Europe. But this is a turning point for vampires and we really see them have their sparkle up and they become wealthy, powerful, and glamorous. Because before this, they're just sort of reanimated, animalistic, depraved creatures.
1: Yes! It's this point in time that vampires become seductive. And, as well, the main vampire in this book is called Lord Ruthven, which is a Scottish name, and it's a loaded name. Ruthven was chosen by one of Byron's former lovers as a thinly veiled fictional story about how he corrupted young women. So it's making him a metaphorical vampire. His friends found this funny and so they named the main vampire after him. But apart from that, the Scottish name connection is actually quite thin. Aye, but this vampire book is such a big success that an English playwright comes along and by 1820 we have a stage play in the Lyceum, which is a really important theatre in London. The playwright, James Planche says that he wants the play set in Eastern Europe, where these legends are originating. However, the theatre refuses because they had tons of Scottish costumes
0: in stock. I as I say, with Outlander, you know, it was meant to be set in Germany, but they didn't have any lederhosen, so they just stuck them in kilts and called it a day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> but yes, at this point in time, the audience had a massive appetite for joyful Scottish traditional music and dancing. And this is also right when playwright Walter Scott is hitting it big. So the theatre insists that this play has to be set in Scotland. And so it begins in Fingal's Cave.
0: I do wish more creative choices were made because of an overload of Scottish costumes. I would have loved watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Agreed. But I think kilted vampires should again become the norm because all supernatural creatures look better in a kilt. But I do find it really interesting that for 19th century Britain, the most famous vampire is suddenly clad in a traditional Highland kilt. And so it is
0: here, as the vampire's kilt blows loosely in the breeze, that Abraham Stoker, or Bram as his friends called him, enters the stage. Stoker was an Irish writer who worked in the theatre, so he would have seen this Scottish vampire on stage. And where does Bram love to holiday to? Why, Cruden Bay, of course. He would take long breaks to visit this area of Aberdeenshire, and the sweeping location really impacted his work. Originally, it's thought he was attracted to Scotland to research ideas for the staging of Macbeth. However, he ended up coming up with a couple of books which used the rugged, untamed North Coast landscape as the backdrop.
1: His 1895 book Water's Moo was set in Cruden's Bay and it gives a gorgeous picture of this area and indeed speaks of Slains Castle. Shall we dive in with a couple of extracts that I've picked out for us? I've tried to find pieces that show how deep Bram's connection with Aberdeenshire was and I've just kind of stitched them together. Remember Jenny, Bram is Irish so... Knock yourself out.
0: From the waist of the sea came a ceaseless muffled roar, which seemed loudest and most full of dangerous import when it came to the mystery of the driving fog. The spate swept over the intervening tongue of land, and the water of cruden took its old course seaward. This watercourse is what is known as the Water's move or the water's mouth. It is a natural split in the cliff, formed by primeval fire or earthquake, or some sort of natural convulsion, which runs through the vast mass of red granite that forms a headland running due south. On one side, a steep, grassy slope leads towards the new castle of Slains, and on the other rises a sheer bank with tufts of thick grass growing on the ledges where the earth has been blown.
1: I love the picture that Bram Stoker paints of this coast. You can tell he's spent a lot of time absorbing the landscape, admiring the details of the rock. You can just see that he has a very intimate relationship with this area and an affinity for Aberdeenshire. Ah,
0: uh, who couldn't have an affinity for Aberdeen Shirani?
1: Not when they've got the butt trees.
0: That's true. We're calling to my soul from out east.
1: This book, What is Moo, which was published just a couple of years before Dracula, also covers the subjects of corruption and darkness by this coastal castle. The term fishing smack is used, which simply means fishing boat.
0: The Aberdeen coast is an important one for guarding, on account of the vast number of fishing smacks which, during the season, work from Peterhead up and down the coast. This vast coming and going affords endless opportunities for smuggling, and despite all vigilance, a considerable amount of stuff finds its way to the consumers without the formality of the custom house or taxes.
1: So it's about smuggling. What Is Moo is a story of love and duty, about a man who's sworn to stop smugglers and his fiance, whose father is a fisher-turned-smuggler. It's a really sad, tragic story, and it touches on a lot of the themes that arise in Dracula. We've got life and death in the shadow of this castle. And New Slain's castle is mentioned a few times in this book especially at nighttime, when Bram describes how the smugglers use the pattern of light created by the windows of New Slain's castle to navigate their ways on the dark seas. But then we get
0: more supernatural with Bram Stoker's second book set at Cruden Bay, The Mystery of the Sea. This book is fed by legends of second sight and seers in Scotland, people who have premonitions of events before they happen. Stoker opens this book with a man on his holiday arriving in Cruden Bay and then having a vision of a family carrying a coffin. The man later discovers that this was a foretelling, as a body has just been found drowned that evening.
1: If you feel like you've heard this story before, then you probably have. We talk about these kind of second sight stories in both our Shehalian episode and there's one very similar in Loch Fine. This specific foretelling folklore is the bread and butter of Scottish legend about Sears. And it shows us that Bram sees both the landscape and culture of the north of Scotland as a muse. And this book The Mystery of the Sea, it runs close to Themes of Dracula, but in a softer way. The landscape, though it has its screams, it also has this real tenderness, describing hollows of seagrass and moss and wild violets together form a green carpet. The surface of the hills is held together by bent grass, which is eternally shifting as the wind takes the fine sand and drifts it to and fro. All behind is green from the meadows that mark the southern edge of the bay to the swelling uplands that stretch away and away far in the distance till the blue mist of the mountain up Braemar sets i find this really intriguing because to set the scene for ghosts and the second sight that bram is tapping into with this story we turn down the volume on the violent weather at cruden bay and allow it to be still and haunting. But then, in this book, The Mystery of the Sea, our protagonist has these moments of questioning his own power with the second sight. He has these big inner monologues. In my secret
0: heart, I not only believed, but knew that some instinct within me was guiding my thoughts in some strange way. The sense of occult power, which is so vital a part of divination, was growing within me and asserting its masterdom. For now that my mind was bent on the phenomena of the second sight, the whole living and moving world around me became a veritable diorama of possibilities. A thousand things which hitherto I had accepted in simple faith as facts were pregnant with new meanings. I began to understand the whole earth and sea and air. All that of which human beings generally, ordinarily, take cognizance is but a film or crust which hides the deeper moving powers and forces.
1: For me, these words sound so close to something that would be said by a vampire. We've got the kind of immortal, enlightenment speech that we see in this genre. Because at the heart of it, it is all about immortality, isn't
0: it? To be a vampire or to have the second sight. In some way, these figures know far more about life and death than us regular old human turnips.
1: Very much so. And I promise we're about to look at Dracula itself, but first there's this really gorgeous ghost scene in the Mystery of the Sea. I feel that this piece of writing underpins the point that connects strands of Scottish lore running through Stoker's work. The context of this scene is the main character sees a massive ghost army wandering out of the sea. It's... Breathtaking. Up the
0: steep path came a silent procession of ghostly figures, so misty of outline that through the grey green of their phantom beings, the rocks and moonlit sea were apparent, and even the velvet blackness of the shadows of the rocks did not lose their gloom. And yet, each figure was defined so accurately that every feature every particle of dress or accoutrement that could be discerned. Even the sparkle of their eyes in that grim waste of ghostly grey was like the lambent flashes of phosphoric light in the foam of moving water cleft by a swift prow. There was no need for me to judge by the historical sequence of their attire or by any inference of hearing. I knew in my heart that these were the ghosts of the dead, who'd been drowned in the waters of the Cruden shores."
1: This matches with a legend that once a year a horde of drowned and decaying ghostly sailors can be seen wading out of the sea below slains. Stoker was definitely pulling local lore into his fiction. But all these wee samples shows the connection that Bram Stoker has with Cruden Bay. He spent a lot of time here thinking about mortality along the coast. It's interesting
0: because I personally have strong opinions on Whitby in Yorkshire getting more Dracula press than Cruden Bay. I suspect that the Whitby tourist board just jumped on the vampire branding pogo stick early on, and thus they get to claim all the credits as Dracula's muse. They actually literally have a in, within the tourist industry there. They call it the Goth Pound because so many people who are interested in Dracula and this whole Gothic scene and culture make pilgrimages to Whitby to sort of take in as much of Dracula's inspiration that they can. And I think Cruden Bay deserves that too. <laughs>
1: Get that Goth Pound to Aberdeen. Yeah, Goth, Goth, Dollar, Dollar. <laughs> Well, the plot of Dracula sees a young Englishman visit a mysterious count deep in the mountains of Transylvania. And Count Dracula, of course, lives in a big, creepy castle. Our young fellow is trapped there and certain he is going to be eaten, but luckily he manages to slip out a window and escape. But lo, Dracula does not like his food on the move, and so he ships himself to England in pursuit and washes up in Whitby, where he and his vampire companions wreak havoc on the locals. So we can understand why Whitby has such an affinity with Dracula, and thus earns the Goth Pound. But Bay's claim is that Dracula's castle in Transylvania was actually inspired by the clifftop New Slains.
0: Yes, and although this fictional castle is in Transylvania, you can tell that the author has spent his afternoons writing about the Scottish mountains. In the book, the approach to Dracula's castle sounds as though it's set in the north of Scotland, with a horse and carriage winding wildly through the Cairngorm Mountains. Blue and purple peaks sound as though a late summer highland haze has descended upon the peaks, and the name Cairngorm actually means blue mountains. And also, the jagged nature of the hills really mirror the mountainous highlands. And so it's like this strange mix of Transylvania and Scotland, all in Bram's writing.
1: And then, of course, we have the description of the castle itself.
0: Suddenly, I became conscious of the fact that the driver was in the act of pulling up the horses in the courtyard of a vast, ruined castle. From whose tall black windows came no ray of light, and whose broken battlements showed a jagged line against the moonlit sky.
1: Okay, aye, so this gives me heavy Slain's vibes. And it kind of echoes the words of earlier visitors to Slain's that we spoke about early in the last episode. It
0: does, and there's more. Because while this castle is not on a sea cliff like Slain's, it is built on the corner of a great rock, so that on three sides it was quite impregnable, and great windows were placed here where sling or bow or culverin could not reach, and consequently light and comfort, impossible to a position which had to be guarded, were secured. I went out on the stairs and found a room looking towards the south, The view was magnificent, and from where I stood there was every opportunity of seeing it. The castle is on the very edge of a terrific precipice. Moreover, the walls of the castle are broken, the shadows are many, and the wind breathes cold through the broken battlements and casements. I love the shade and the shadow, and would be alone with my thoughts when I may.
1: That's it then. Dracula's castle is cemented in my imagination and my heart as slain's. And finally, Annie, there is the octagonal room of the castle.
0: This is perhaps the largest inspiration that Stoker took from slain's and suggests that he had not only viewed the castle from afar, but had also walked its dark halls and graced its many rooms. For in Dracula's castle, there is also an octagonal room that leads into the bedroom of the main character. It's described as an octagonal room lit by a single lamp without any window. And what do you know, Annie? New Slains has a suspiciously similar and uniquely odd octagonal room of darkness and intrigue at its heart.
1: I think it's fair to say that Stoker drew heavily upon New Slanes when building Dracula's shadowy clifftop castle, leading me to draw no other conclusion that Cruden Bay's Dracula tourism should be equal, if not higher, than Whitby. Plus, have you ever heard of a better description of an Abidonian than...
0: What matter of a man is this? Or what manner of a creature? Is it the semblance of a man? I feel the dread of this horrible place overpowering me. I am in fear, in awful fear, and there is no escape for me. I am encompassed with
1: terrors that
0: I dare not think of. Granite, grey, grey, granite and rain everywhere.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We're just joking. We love you, Aberdeen. Top, top tier part of Scotland. But
0: Dracula has endured as a classical horror story that changed how vampires are perceived in culture. Bram Stoker opened the heavy wooden doors to a whole new way of imagining these terrifying immortal creatures. And that's all thanks to him and his holidaying in Cruden Bay.
1: I think we should all go for a holiday in Cruden Bay.
0: Yeah, and we'll do- I'm never going to Whitby. They're not getting my goth pound.
1: <laughs> I don't know. I think we should also go on a very tiny holiday to Whitby, but <laughs> very big holiday to Cruden Bay. All right, that sounds good. And we're <laughs> going to Whitby mainly for the ice cream. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> New Slanes, like many of the castles scattered throughout the Scottish landscape is home to many a ghost, eternally wandering its ruinous grounds. The ghosts of New Slain's Castle weave together a story which embodies a microcosm of the local history. The first ghost that we see is not that of a person,
0: but rather two horses pulling a carriage. This grand old horse-drawn carriage has been seen pulling up to stop where the once massive entrance of New Slain's castle stood. And although the entrance has all but crumbled to ruins, the horse and carriage continue to draw up nonetheless, forever on a journey so close to completion that will never end. Perhaps this is an Earl of Errol or a Countess of Errol returning from a long trip down south. Weary and road-worn and ready for their plush four-poster bed.
1: Complete with your Edward Cullen posters, of course. Naturally. Or perhaps it is a visiting
0: chief, here to garner support and scheme against their enemies. Regardless of who is inside, the apparition tells us of the aristocratic history of the area, that it's a seat of wealth and power. From the moment this open, clifftop spot was chosen to be the site of New Slain's Castle, a new story began. For centuries, these walls stood as a seat of power. Decisions were made here. Decisions which would ripple out across Scotland and impact countless lives in one way or another. It signifies the structure of a society largely gone. An echo of how power once flowed our next ghost, or ghosts I should say, as there are countless of them, is that of the drowned sailors. Sodden spectres wading from the relentless waves of the cold North Sea. It is believed that once a year, these men can be seen leaving their watery graves and standing upon land once more. Unfortunately, There's not much that we know about who these men are or when they are from or what happened to them out at sea. But there are so many of them that we have to imagine they died in storms and shipwrecks.
1: But tragically, this is quite fitting. These apparitions representing all the souls lost to the rough and stormy North Seas. The folks in the towns and villages of the coast relied heavily on the sea. Their survival was tied to the water, but also the sea is an incredibly dangerous place. Every boat that set out into the open ocean carried the weight of knowing that not all on board may return. If tragedies did happen, it was not unusual for bodies to never be recovered. The man forever lost to the deep. They could have been fishermen, out for the day, caught up
0: in a sudden storm. Or sailors on a longer voyage, unfamiliar with the coastline and dashed upon the rocks. Or they could have been smugglers. In 1707, the duty on liquor was hiked up to finance England's debt. And as a result, smuggling illicit alcohol became common practice for those on the coasts. There was no man more despised than the excise man and folk would go to great lengths to avoid his reach, no matter how dangerous the alternative.
1: The coastline surrounding Slane's castle is dotted with small shingled coves, sheltered by the ragged cliffs. These hidden bays were perfect for loading and unloading illegal cargo. Amongst the cliff, there are also many sea caves, accessible only by boat. And when the tide is right, these spots were known to the smugglers, and they proved useful for stashing contraband or laying low when the customs officers were on the prowl. By its peak in the late 18th century, somewhere around 8,000 gallons of this illicit alcohol was being smuggled through this area every month. That's over 35,000 liters, are enough for a texan party (laughs) it was a risky business smuggler ships were operating in darkness and navigating the coast was difficult and so highly dangerous with low visibility many an alcohol-laden boat was smashed upon the rocks and many a smuggler lost to sea one of the
0: most notorious smugglers of the 18th century actually lived in Slane's Parish and met a very gruesome end one bitterly cold night in 1798. His name was Philip Kennedy and he knew the cliffs, caves and coves surrounding New Slains Castle like the back of his hand. The illegal activities planned for the night of the 19th of December were routine. Just a small 160 gallons of Dutch gin were being unloaded at Cransdale Head and Patrick, his brother John, and some farmhands were then to cart this booty inland and hide it. And all would have gone to plan had one of the farmhands not sold the brothers out to the excise men. In the wee hours of the night, the men of Slain's Parish crept down to the shore, Once the gin was unloaded and on the move inland, the excise men, who had been laying in wait, pounced. There were three of them, and while Patrick was able to hold down two, the third excise man, called Anderson, brought his cutlass down on Patrick's head. The excise men then galloped away from the bloody scene, but Patrick was not dead. Instead, he stumbled three-quarters of a mile to a local farm and told of his brutal murder before succumbing to his injuries.
1: I love that the Robin Hood-style folk stories of Scotland aren't about stealing from the rich to give to the poor. It's just about smuggling in some alcohol to avoid the taxes. There's another story from the nearby hamlet of the Old Castle, which was a hot spot for hiding smuggled goods. One night during a great old ceilidh in a barn, the floor collapsed and plunged the partiers down into a hidden cellar. Their only cushion from this fall was barrels of illegal French and Dutch liquor.
0: Man, I'm sure the ghosts of those hangovers still haunt that barn. <laughs> <laughs>
1: is what some would call a very spiritual place (laughs) and with that
0: let's get back to the other spirits of New Slain's castle
1: that's the spirit
0: (laughs) the next ghosts that appear before us are two soldiers they are seen walking together along the grazed grass around the castle's ruin in their World War 2 military dress again unfortunately We do not know the story of these soldiers or how they came to haunt New Slane's castle.
1: But we do know that military buildings from both the First and Second World Wars are scattered all along Scotland's northeast coastline.
0: And also not just from these two wars. I was looking at some old maps and found some defensive battlements in nearby Peterhead from 1739.
1: I, I mean, I think that Slain's castles are defensive structures in the first sense. We just see that this is a coast that's very insecure that someone's going to invade. Living on a coastline means that you are the first line of defence when it comes to overseas threats, be that by the Vikings over a thousand years ago, or potentially the Axis forces in the 20th century. These coasts are especially vulnerable to attack. Coastal settlements during the 20th century wars were seen as key to the transfers of goods, people and information. One of the main advantages to Britain being an island nation was that it was much harder to bring a large army via sea than across the land. By the Second World War, New Slanes was not in any position to have soldiers stationed at it. However, the area was bombed on multiple occasions, though they were possibly aiming for Aberdeen as an industrial centre. In August 1940, four bombs were dropped on Slanes Lodge, killing three people and injuring four more. And just off Cruden Bay, where Bram Stoker enjoyed staying, Four bombs were dropped on a ship, which promptly caught fire and sank. Are the ghosts of these soldiers that of two young
0: lads lost in battles overseas, returning for one last stroll along the coastline where they grew up on?
1: Around the wartime period, we see a lot of interest rekindled in the spirit world because there were so many folk who didn't return from war. So I'm open to interpretations of ghost soldiers being seen at Cruden Bay from the endless wars and battles that Scotland and then Britain were engaged in.
0: There are two more ghosts that haunt New Slane's castle. Some say their stories are connected, while others question this theory. Either way, they certainly are the spookiest of the apparitions tied to these ruins. And there is a reason that I've left them till last. If we rewind back in time from World War II, back to the late 1500s, we find ourselves in a time when the fear of witches was rife. The first of these two apparitions, seen and heard, in amongst the ruined walls of Slains castle, is that of a man with keys on his belt. The jingling of them can be heard as he paces the hallways, and he's even said to tug on the coattails of unsuspecting tourists. It is thought that this is the ghost of a jailer, a man who would ensure that anyone being held prisoner within the impenetrable walls of the castle stayed securely locked up. And the ghost that is associated with him is a woman in white, and it is believed that she is one of the prisoners of this jailer, imprisoned for witchcraft.
1: It seems no matter how much we try, we can't quite get rid of Francis Hay, the 9th Earl of Errol, because once again, we find ourselves unceremoniously flung back into his life and time at Slains castle. Because right around the time of his rebellion and exile, he was also entangled in the Great Scottish Witch Hunt of 1597. So entangled, in fact, that
0: he not only accused people of witchcraft himself, he also held people accused of witchcraft in the dungeons of his castle, and served as the Prosecutor Constable on Witch Trials. It is thought that this woman in white, who mournfully walks the halls of New Castle, was one of the local women who was accused of witchcraft, imprisoned and ultimately executed for her supposed supernatural crimes.
1: The Great Scottish Witch Hunt is a tragic chapter in Scottish history. But unfortunately, we just don't have the time to look at it properly in this episode. Aw, man. So we'll just have to examine it properly in the next episode. Yay!
0: I love witch episodes.
1: Jenny, we're not meant to yay for witch
0: hunts. <laughs> I know, I know, but I know you listeners too are secretly going, yay, witches.
1: <laughs> I can't respond. To that, but that's okay, that's okay. <laughs> New Slane's Castle has followed the path of Old Slane's Castle and currently lies in a ruinous state, though it's a much more impressive ruin than Old Slane's. In 1916, the 20th Earl of Errol sold New Slane's due to financial difficulties, ending more than 300 years of occupation by the Hay family. A wealthy fellow named Sir John Ellermann bought the castle. However, he did not live in it and, in fact, he rarely visited at all. It was eventually bought
0: by a Dundee-based demolition company who specialised in buying old castles and mansions and stripping them of anything of any worth and selling the items on for profit. The demolition went ahead in the summer of 1925, only 30 years after Bram Stoker wrote Dracula.
1: I feel like we need to call the heritage police (laughs) because this couldn't be more of a heritage crime. I am so glad that this kind of thing just could not be done nowadays. I mean, old castles do frequently sell their goods, but the structure and the interiors are usually protected.
0: Oh, absolutely. And contrary to popular belief, the roof was not removed for tax purposes. Rather, so that the valuable parts of it could be sold. The lead and slate could be sold for profit. Again, heritage police crimes. But just like that, a centuries-old seat of power, rebellion and influence was stripped bare and left to the elements.
1: The real vampire is the person who sells the roof of a beautiful castle for profit instead of letting it remain as a gorgeous monument on the Scottish coast. Over the hundred years that have since passed, the shell of New Slains has remained impressively intact. The walls are huge and imposing. The towers are still four or five stories tall. The remnants of the Hay family stand defiant against the brutal elements of the North Sea, stuck in a liminal existence of slow decay. But there may
0: still be life in it yet. There have been a few attempts at resurrecting the building's bones and revitalising them. Before the 2008 recession, there were plans to turn the ruins into 35 luxury holiday apartments and planning permission was granted. But since then, New Slains seems to have fallen into a state of limbo, somewhere between life and death.
1: Wait. Are you comparing this castle to a vampire? Yes, Annie. Yes, I am. (laughs) (laughs) All right, then. On that weird and blood-chilling note, thank you all so much for listening to our wee show. It's wonderful to be able to research these strange and wonderful tales of Scotland and share them with you all. And I'm really excited to sink my teeth into the next episode on The Great Scottish Witch Hunt.
0: And if you can't wait until then for more Scottish stories, then you can head over to our Patreon and not only help support us as we research, write, record and release this show, but you also gain access to loads more wonderful Scottish content. We'll be releasing a new Patreon segment soon, looking at a fun spin-off from last episode, all about the Spanish Armada, Mull and Sunken Treasure. So thank you so much to all our current patrons and a warm welcome to our newest member, Jessica.
1: Thank you so much for joining. I like to imagine all our patrons as pipistrelle bats living in the legendary walls of Slanes. We are creatures of the night and we fly gracefully around the castle's rooms and ruins, keeping a watchful eye on the goings on and the potential vampires around us. We may be small, but our bat senses are keen and we use echolocation to navigate the winding corridors and dark corners with ease. You might say we use our bat nav system to get around.
0: <laughs> yeah, someone might.
1: <laughs> our sharp fangs are perfect for snacking on the occasional insect, but we're not interested in anything more bloody than that. We drink batinis and batocinos made for us by our bat tender and we eat battenberg cake which i love in both my human and bat form as i'm a big fan of marzipan we also have a little bat chef who makes us batatoui of course he does <laughs> so if anyone finds themselves wandering the halls of slain's castle and hears the faint flutter of wings overhead don't be afraid it's just me and my pals Okay. Until next time, everyone. Slanjava. Slanjava.
0: Because before this, they're just sort of reanimated animalistic, depraved creatures.
1: It's like you with your spaghetti, Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> Still waiting on that sparkle up. Still waiting. <laughs>
0: I became conscious of the fact that the driver was in the act of pulling up to the... Oh, so many words. He's very wordy.
1: It's very wordy. And a fact mm-hmm. and act rhyme, which is annoying. Right.
0: <laughs> Suddenly. <laughs>
1: <It's> too poetic. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just propose the theory that not all the Hays of Errol were rebellious? It was just one really rebellious vampire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, just every year is like, I'm
0: now the 15th Earl of Errol. Woo! <laughs> <laughs>